Hey, it's Andrew McKay wishing you a happy new year from all of us at News Radio 923. News Radio 923. Informative, local, dependable. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to remember those who've transgressed against the great spirit of inclusion and must henceforth be forever cast into the abyss of dead names. In this moment of our remembrance, we prove with great grief and wailing the sincerity of our noble tolerance. What we once wrongly allowed in the ignorance of white privilege has become the cleansing rite of virtue signaling we use to prove our purity. Join with me now as we remember those we've lost. First, the New Year's resolution to lose weight or go on a diet because, as you no doubt recognize, this is fundamentally fat-phobic and body-negative. As fat liberation activist Sarah, who goes by the username Wait What Sorry, recently explained, Generally speaking, there's three kind of big buckets of reasons why someone might engage in intentional weight loss. First is desirability, second, health, third, stigma. But at the end of the day, all of those are rooted in fat phobia in different ways. That's right, virtually every reason for losing weight is merely repackaged fat phobia, and probably sexist. If you do it to be prettier, or more handsome, for instance, you're just perpetuating the thin centricity of our culture and reinforcing the idea that skinny is always happier and hotter. And so if you are wanting to lose weight in order to become more desirable, you are upholding a fatphobic beauty standard, as well as, you know, white supremacy and all that jazz. Obviously white supremacy and all that jazz. Moreover, you're ignoring the clearly scientific fact that not all people are capable of losing weight, and also you're rewarding the people who unintentionally lose weight through no fault of their own. In addition, due to the fine work done by author Natalia Melman Petzrella, although with only two hyphenated surnames, she's still on probationary status, who recently told Time Magazine about the most surprising find in her book Fit Nation, The Pains and Gains of America's Exercise Obsession, namely that the so-called health movement in America has its roots in white supremacy, with the goal of making childbearing age white women be healthier so as to deliver more white children into the world. And surely, if the evils of fat phobia don't persuade you to abandon intentional weight loss, the stigma of perpetuating white supremacy with so-called good diet and exercise must. However, there is hope. For those of you who find yourself unable to resist caving in to the fat phobia all around us and lose weight, so long as you either lose it unintentionally or at least continue the fight against weightism, all is well. But it's really important that if you still go through with intentional weight loss that you don't sacrifice fat liberation politics because otherwise it's still just fat phobia even if you're doing it for your mental health and accessibility for all the fat liberationists out there woe unto all who offend woe unto all who offend but second continue with me if you will to learn that in fact all new year's resolutions are unacceptable for their reinforcement of privilege or ableism or their marginalization of people who suffer from self-control deficiency syndrome Consider some examples. People vow to manage their finances better. Well, it sure must be nice to have been bequeathed the mathematical skills to do so. Can't you see the numerical literacy privilege asserted in believing you can control your own financial outcomes? Perhaps you forget how many people are trapped in economic situations beyond their control and over which they have no viable power and no ability to do arithmetic. Should you not rather suffer in solidarity with them instead of rubbing your mathearchical arithmeticism and money freedom in their faces? It's so ableist. Again, 
Some people vow to quit or reduce their consumption of substances, such as alcohol or tobacco, but don't you see how this reinforces the ableist notion that personal responsibility and individual choice are the key components of lived outcomes? Do you know nothing about addiction or diminished capacity due to parental, cultural, or television influences? Who are you to waggle your unsmoked cigarettes and unshotgunned beer cans in the faces of those who struggle with real psychobehavioral challenges such as stunted desire management disease? And again, people vow to be more punctual, which of course is a racist reinforcement of the white Western European norm of timeliness, not adhered to by many other cultures and people groups around the world. Moreover, punctuality requires an investment in timepieces and therefore only further empowers the corporations of big time, like Seiko, Casio, Citizen, Patek Philippe, Swatch, Movado, and of course, Rolex. But instead of feeding this Eurocentrist paradigm of punctuality and timeliness, I say we embrace CPT and siesta centrism, power to the tardy, down with the timearchy, woe unto all who offend. Woe unto all who offend. And finally, I want to take some time to praise the fine work being done in our federal government to combat the scourge of micro-inequities. Now, I know it's possible some of you have not yet memorized the 148th edition of Fulsenacker's Guide to Inclusive Language, so let me explain. Whereas a microaggression expresses racial or gender bias stereotypes in subtle ways through language, micro-inequities express racism and sexism through behaviors. For instance, as the brochure used in an actual Department of Homeland Security Empowerment Seminar explains, when a coworker interrupts you while talking, leaves you out of a discussion or a project, continues to work on emails while you try talking to him, or looks at his watch while listening to you, these are all incontrovertible examples of racist and sexist micro-inequities. Not to be confused, of course, with micro-indignities, micro-indubitabilities, and micro-inedibilities, all of which, of course, fall within the broader hierarchy of micro-messaging, and each of which have received their own treatment in numerous doctoral theses. Now, it's true. Some of the unenlightened heathens were still forced to endure because we haven't amassed enough capital to relocate them to re-education camps, yet have tried to claim that such behaviors are not special to minority groups and are merely examples of rudeness. Moreover, they claim that white men have even at times done all of these things to other white men. <laughs> right. As if we aren't able to recognize the vast difference between a white man looking at his watch while talking with another white man and that same white man looking at his watch while talking with a person of African ancestry or a human with feminine of center tendencies. What sort of gullible neophytes do you take us for? We know the difference. Oh. And you can bet, we also know the difference between a white man who actually listens undistractedly to a marginalized co-worker and a white man who only appears to be listening undistractedly to a marginalized co-worker because he's scared to be caught micro-inequitizing that human by looking at his watch. We see. We always see. So good work federal government showing us that things formerly classified as being productive, busy, or just rude are actually examples of racism and misogyny in the workplace extra participation trophies, and more group hugs for you, for sure. Woe unto all who offend. Woe unto all who offend. And now, with these cleansing rites performed, may we all go forth in loving tolerance and microaggress no more. Woe unto all who offend. Woe unto all who offend. 625 here on News Radio 92.3. I'm Andrew McKay. It's the